It's a beautiful day, and it's an exciting day here around River West Church. Really glad you're here. I want you to know that the Kona Shaved Ice Cart is going to be here after this service, setting up right out there, and we're going to have like a summer social. We've got, we've got lawn games out there and just an opportunity to head out and, and meet someone new and fellowship a little bit. Glad you're here for that. But, but even more exciting than that, today we launch a new series of preaching in our church. I'm really excited about it. So grab that Bible, okay, and pull it out and open to the book of James, chapter one, verse one. Go all the way back to the end of your New Testament. When you get to Hebrews, you're almost there. Keep turning, turn one more page. Go to chapter 12, 13 of Hebrews, and then you'll get to James And look with me at James chapter one, verse one. In the 32 years that River West Church has been a church, this is the first time we've ever preached a Sunday morning preaching series in the book of James. Isn't that amazing? 32 years, I know. Now, it's been studied in small groups. It's been studied in our women's Bible study. It's not that we don't like James. It's not that we've ignored James. We just have never preached James on Sunday morning. It's been on our radar preaching team gets together all the time and I've got a dry erase board in my office and we'll throw up different preaching series ideas and where we think we should go. Major lessons in the minor prophets. Leviticus 16. We'll just throw all kinds of stuff up there. All right. And we've had James on our radar for a long time. And finally we realized now is the time. Now is the time. And you say, well, why? Why James now? Well, a couple reasons. Number one, James is immensely practical. Have you ever noticed that? This is why people love it. If I had a nickel for every person who came up to me in the last week and said, James is my favorite book in the whole Bible. Why is that? Because it's so practical, you know? And it is practical. Some of the most practical statements in your Bible are found in the book of James. Statements like, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Now that is practical, okay? I mean, he even gives us the ratio. If you're talking more than you're listening, you're already out of balance, right? Just look at that verse. I wanna ask you a question. Can you imagine what it would be like if for one day in the world, every single human on the planet just did that? Oh my gosh. Wars would cease, marriages would heal, Twitter would totally go out of business, amen, right? Facebook too, hallelujah, come Lord Jesus, come. Anyway, (laughs) how about this? Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. It's not enough just to hear God's word, you gotta do it. How about this? No human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless the Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people. This is James's version of, do you kiss your mother with that mouth? All right, it's like the same thing, like with the things we do with our mouths, right? Okay, do you want practical? Come back when we we preach on on that passage. How about this? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? James 4, verse 1. Do you have a pattern in your life where you're always sideways with people? Like, why do I have so much conflict in my life? Have you ever wondered? Did you know James actually tells us the answer to that? Why is there division? 
Why is there conflict? Amazing. So who was James? His greeting doesn't give us a whole lot to go on, but will you look at it with me? It says James 1, verse 1. James, a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, greetings. And that's all we get. And if you know much about church history, you know that James was a really common name in the ancient world. And there were actually a lot of people in the early church named James. And a lot of them were kind of famous. So there was James, the brother of John, who was one of the 12 apostles. But that James was martyred in 44 AD, which was before this letter was written. So that is not the James. This is not James, the son of Zebedee. There was another James who was one of the 12 disciples, you remember. He was James, the son of Alphaeus, but he was so unknown in the New Testament church that it's very unlikely he would have written a greeting to a letter and not explained who he was. So it's probably not that James. Whoever this James is, he was well known enough that he could write a letter describing himself simply as James and send it out through ancient Palestine to all of these churches that had dispersed and just say, hey, it's me, James. And everyone would go, oh, it's that James. And so this is why most scholars agree. Do you know who this James is? This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Did you know that? After Joseph and Mary had the, the amazing, miraculous birth of Christ, their, their firstborn son, then they were married, and then they continued to have children. And so one of those children was named James. And this is that James. Can you imagine growing up with Jesus sleeping in the bunk above you? What would that be like? <laughs> Jesus, you're always quoting the Old Testament enough already, okay? This is that James. And actually, the, this, the, the gospel accounts tell us that initially, he didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, you can go read this later, for chapter 15, Paul tells us that the risen Lord went specifically to his half-brother, James, 1 Corinthians 15, 7, and appeared to him in his resurrection glory to convince James to become a powerful disciple and apostle to the point that this James, James, the half-brother of Jesus, he became the leader of the New Testament church for almost the entire book of Acts. That's this James. And now you know why he's so practical. He's so practical because his brother was so practical. A lot of people say, when you read James, it sounds a lot like the Sermon on the Mount. We'll see that. You'll read it. It's like, wow, that, it's almost like James had his brother's teaching of the Sermon on the Mount in his head as he wrote this book. Amazing. So that's one reason to study it. It's practical. But here's the real reason. I'm so excited about this. James was convinced that the faith of these humble little Christian outposts that he wrote to, he was convinced their faith would turn the world upside down. I mean, he believed it. You notice that in verse one, he says he's writing to the, 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 the 12 tribes of the dispersion. That's the Greek word diaspora. And it just basically, it's the word they use to, to describe scattering seed. And the idea was when the church got persecuted, 
the Christians spread out all over ancient Palestine and they formed these tiny little outposts of Christian community. And then James wrote a, a circular letter that would go to each of them. And he was convinced don't be discouraged. Don't be intimidated. I know you're out there on the, on the front lines. You're out there as an outpost of Christian faith. But let me tell you something. Your faith, that little pocket of vibrant living faith that you have as a community, that has the power to transform the world. And friends, can I tell you something? It did. That, those humble little communities of faith turned the world upside down for Jesus. Within 40 years of the ascension of Christ, they took the gospel to three out of the seven continents because of their faith. Because of their faith, the early church rushed out into the streets to pick up the sick that the pagan world had thrown out into the streets because they had the plague. So the people that the world cast off, the early church ran into the streets to heal them and mend them and care for them. And they did it because of their faith. It was because of their faith that the early church invented the hospital and the university and the scientific method. It was because of their faith that the early church abolished slavery and fought for justice. It's faith that causes a Christian to go to the airport and stand there and be the first people waiting for a refugee family when they get off the plane to welcome them and make them feel at home here. It's because of faith that Christians go downtown and serve the elderly poor. It's because of faith that a Christian dentist gives free extractions to people who can't afford them. It's because of faith that a Christian walks across the sanctuary because they notice that somebody feels left out and they make them feel welcome. It's because of faith that a Christian walks across the street and loves on their neighbor and invites them to dinner. And James believed it. Friends, can I tell you something? The book of James is about faith. That's what this book is about, living faith. The kind of faith that's so real and genuine and authentic that when a community of people live in it, it turns the world upside down. And we're gonna study it over the next eight weeks. I'm gonna put up a slide to show you the themes we're gonna look at because what James does is he says, here's all the things that you need to know that your faith your faith connects to in your life. I mean, is that a practical list of things, okay? Trials, being doers, works, your tongue, wisdom, worldliness, wealth, prayer. Over the next eight weeks, we're gonna take each of those themes and we're gonna say, how, can, how does my Christian faith inform the way that I think about this particular topic? And it's going to be wonderful. And I'm glad you're going to be a part of it. All right. You say, Pastor, how can I get the most out of this study in James? I'll give, I'll give you four things I'd love for you to, to do over the next eight weeks. Okay. Here's four things you can do to get the most out of our series in James. Number one, read it. Simple. I know. Okay. Just read it. How many Christians have never just sat down and read the book of James? Okay. Read it. Here's what I want you to do. Will you in the next week, sit down and read the whole letter in one sitting because that's how the early church would have received it. They would have gathered and somebody would have said, the half 
half-brother of Jesus sent us a letter. And they would have gathered together and someone would have read the whole letter in their presence. Sit down, read just the whole letter in one sitting. And then make it a part of your daily devotion. Read it every, every day. Stay with us, track with us. Here's the second thing you can do, memorize it. Don't memorize the whole book. I'm not asking you to do that. But what if as you were reading it, what if the Lord put on your heart a couple of verses where you thought, you know what, that's definitely for me. I think I need to, I need to do what the Old Testament says. Don't let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night. Just take a couple of verses and memorize them. Hide them in your heart. But don't just read it. Don't just memorize it. Do it. We're going to talk a lot about this. We're going to ask you to start putting some things into practice in your life. James is a book you have to do in order for it to unleash its power. And finally, share it. Share it with a neighbor. Invite a friend. Can I tell you something? We're starting our Sunday nights on the lawn this, this, this summer. It starts tonight, 6 p.m. That would be, an, if today, if you're touched by what James has to say to you and you, and you think, I need to invite my neighbor to, to come with me tonight. Come back at six and join us. Or come back anytime this summer and bring a friend and share James. You know what I love? Our junior high group, they're going through the exact same eight words we're doing. And Tiffany, who's our, who's our junior high director, she's sending her junior hires home with questions each week on the theme so that the junior high kids can talk with their mom and dad around the dinner table about James. Isn't that cool? I love that. And how about you? Share this study with someone. Invite someone to be a part of it. Now, here's what I want you to know this morning. Okay, if you have a pen, will you please write this down? Here's my headline for today. Your faith is so precious to Jesus that he will often utilize the hardships that come your way to prove that faith. That's how precious your faith is to Christ. Even the junk, even the garbage, even the hardship, when it hits, Jesus can use it, and he often does, to test your faith. And so we come to the very first theme in his letter, the very first theme that James turns to. We look at it, verses two to four. After his greeting, James says next, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You know this. We always put to the test the things that matter most. Have you ever thought about this? Always. The things that are the most important, the things we depend on, the things we need to depend on, we put them to the test. Airbags. If you found out that they had never tested the airbags in your car, would you still drive it? Probably not. Airplanes. If you found out they never tested the airplane before they flew it, would you get on board? No. Do you know the incredible battery of tests they put an airplane through? It's amazing. 
extreme heat, extreme cold, they bend those wings. Have you ever been on an airplane when there's turbulence and you look out the window and you start to see that wing go like this? That freaks me out more than anything. I'm like, Jesus, I'm ready to come home. Okay, but do you know what they do with an airplane before they, every single airplane, they bend those wings and they bend the wings 90 degrees. A wing can bend 90 degrees before it snaps. Can you believe that? That's incredible. It's incredible. So don't worry about that turbulence. That wing can go a lot farther, okay? You know what they do with airplanes? Someone from Boeing invented what they call a chicken gun, okay? You, you've heard of this? And what they do is they take, now the chickens are already dead, and they put this chicken inside of a chicken gun, and they shoot it at the cockpit, and then they shoot it at the turbo engine to make sure that it doesn't blow up the airplane. Aren't you thankful that they do that? Okay? Why? Because we always test the things that are the most important. And can I tell you something, friends? Your faith is so much more important to Jesus than airbags and airplanes. So much more important. James says, it's your faith that's being tested. Why? You won't know for sure that your faith is genuine until it stands up under the test. You just won't know. A couple of years ago, I bought a rain jacket. And it was called the Portland Rain Jacket. Okay. Which is a perfect name for a raincoat, all right? If it was called the Phoenix Rain Jacket, I would have less confidence in it. Okay. And this jacket, they said on the inside label, we guarantee you this jacket is 100% waterproof. And I was like, great. But you know what? I didn't know for sure until I wore it in January <laughs> and it poured and I came home and I took off the coat and my shirt was totally dry. I was like, it's true. It's easy to say, I trust God. I trust God. We say that all the time. But the test, of course, is when you really do choose to trust God even when the garbage hits. See, it's when the garbage hits, it's when the hardship comes, it's when you're, you're going along totally unsuspecting and suddenly out of nowhere, you just get smacked up alongside the head with an unbelievable hardship, a trial. And then in that moment, you decide, I'm gonna continue to trust God even though this is so horrible. Now you know that your faith is genuine. Now you know. Now verse two is pretty radical. We just look at it with me again. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters. That is a crazy statement. Count it all joy when the trial hits. Whereas the world would say, count it all joy when you avoid the trials, <laughs> right? That's the world's view unbelievable. You open your Bible and it says, count it all joy when the trial hits. And before we go any further, I just want to pause, okay? And I want to acknowledge that this verse is really difficult for some people, okay? This verse is really easy to read when things are going well, right? 
It's really easy to read. And the, but the bottom, I, the reality is I know right now there are people sitting here in this sanctuary saying, I hate this verse. This verse, it's so hard. My life is so painful right now. Does James have any idea what I'm going through? And I just want you to know, I see you, okay? I love you. I pray that by the end of what I'm about to say, you will leave thankful for this verse. And so let me just say right out of the gate here, here's one thing you should never do with that statement. Never quote that verse to somebody whose life has just fallen apart, okay? Don't do it. This is not a platitude that you throw around. Somebody says to you, my daughter just died. Don't say, well, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters. I'll tell you what they're gonna count, joy, punching you in the mouth, okay? Don't do that. That's not what James has in mind. Do you remember when Jesus showed up at Mary and Martha's house and they had just laid their brother in the tomb? Do you know what Jesus did not do? He did not say, count it all joy. He wept with them. He ached. He sat next to them. Did he know the truth of this verse? Of course he did. Do, do we often know the truth of this verse? Yes. But the other temptation is to take this verse and write it off as some crazy Christian masochistic, like this verse is... Silly, and just say this, 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 okay, I like the rest of the New Testament, but this verse, I don't like it as much. Here's the problem with that. James is actually in some pretty good company when he said this. Here's Peter. Peter said, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Same verse. And by the way, that rejoicing, it doesn't mean we're walking around with a happy face. Oh, everything's okay when in fact my life is falling apart. That's not the joy. That's not the definition of joy. Joy is deeper. It's not a surface level, I'm going to pretend to be happy even though I'm really miserable. Joy comes from a place of faith where I see there are other things going on here and God is in control. And I believe that. Paul said something like this, Romans 5.3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. Even Jesus. Here's how the writer of Hebrews described Jesus. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So we've got a theme here. James is in some pretty good company. And maybe these godly men were onto something. See, I think they were. There's a lot of really amazing words in verse two. We look at it again. But the word that I'm most interested in this morning is that first word, the word count. Count. It means this is a mental word. It means to consider or think or to deem. It means to step back, take a look, weigh the factors, and make a mental account of what's happening. It means we have a decision to make. 
a mental judgment about how we're going to view life in this world, even life when it's really hard. And James says, I want you to do this. I want you to take time and consider and count. Powerful emotions are really natural. The storm hits and you're going to fall to your knees. You're going to come unglued. You're going to weep. You're going to yell. You're going to fear all of that. But when those emotions begin to subside, we need to think about the trial from a biblical perspective. Faith means seeing my world from a radically God-centered perspective. That's what faith means. It means I walk around this world and I don't see the world from a worldly perspective. I don't see the world from an Adam perspective. I see my world from this radical 50,000 foot, that's not even high enough, radical, God-centered perspective. You cannot choose your lot in life. You did not get to choose where you were born. You did not choose basic things about who you are. You often cannot choose the circumstances of your life. And you almost never get to choose when hardship hits. But there is one thing you can choose. You can choose how you're going to think about it. You do have control over that. You have the ability to step back, like James says, and to, and to take an account. And this is what James is ultimately describing. He's describing this radical, supernatural perspective on our world. Have you ever thought about this? Why is it that one person hits a trial, something really hard, and for some reason, they come out on the other side and they have what James describes as endurance. You see that word? The steadfastness in the middle of verse two. The faith gets tested and God uses it to create steadfastness. And then another person hits a trial and when they come out of it, they've given up on God. They've, they've said, I'm done with church. I'm done with the Bible. I'm done with Jesus. I'm enough. What's the difference? You say, well, maybe the second person had a much more horrible trial. But the problem with that is I've met people who went through something so unbelievably hellish, I can't even believe it, and they come out more in love with Jesus than ever. And I've met people who went through something relatively difficult, and they abandoned God altogether. Christopher and I, a couple weeks ago, we had a cup of coffee with Pastor Charles from Rwanda, our brother and our friend. We're going to have him come preach in, in the fall and share with our church. And he, we were catching up on what's happening in Rwanda. We have a ministry partnership with Africa New Life, and it's been a wonderful partnership in our church. And I'll be honest with you, there was a moment in this conversation where my jaw dropped. I did not see this coming. Charles was talking about what they're doing in their ministry in Rwanda. And he looked at us and he said, we've, we've, we've made one shift because of a need in, our, in what we're doing in our ministry. And we were like, well, tell us about that. And he said, we've, we've devoted a bunch of our resources to feeding pastors and their families in Rwanda. 
And I said, what? We, we feed the children and we, 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 we pay for them to go to school. And he's like, no, no, no. We're, we have to now feed the pastors. And we said, why is that, Charles? He goes, he goes oh, Oh, oh yeah, in America, you have the vaccine. The vac- we, we, don't, we don't have the money in Rwanda to buy the vaccine. Only about 400,000 people in Rwanda have gotten the vaccine and they're all elites. None of the, pa- the churches are shut down still and there's no Zoom, there's no YouTube, there's no Facebook, thank God. There's, okay, there's, there, there, pastors aren't preaching in front of a camera in Kigali. They've not been with their church for 18 months. We sat in my office with, Charles Allen, who's the stateside representative, Christopher and I, and Charles said, in Rwanda, if we had a meeting like this with four people who don't come from the same family, we would all get arrested because it's still so shut down. And so what are we doing in Rwanda? We have to feed the pastors because they're starving. And I said, I've had a great year, Jesus, thank you. I've had a great year. Why is it? One person hits a storm and they give up on Jesus. And another hits a storm and they come through. James tells us, do you, see the, do you have the faith to see the world through a God-centered perspective? Let me, let, me, let me unpack this a little bit more. Let me talk about worldview. There's different ways to view the world. If your fundamental worldview is that life is about maximum pleasure, maximum enjoyment, or at the very least, always improving your circumstances. I call this the world is my playground worldview, right? The world is my playground. And the fundamental goal of life is maximum pleasure. Can I tell you something? If that's your worldview, you will always be disappointed with God because you're gonna constantly bump up against hard things that rob your enjoyment. Life is hard for everyone. Life is hard. If your ultimate worldview is that life is about self-actualization and self-expression, I call this the, the world is my oyster worldview, right? The world is my oyster, and let me tell you something, I am the pearl, okay, all right? And let me tell you something, a lot of people, that's their basic worldview. What is the purpose of life? For me to actualize myself and give full expression to everything that I am. And can I tell you something? If that is your worldview, you are constantly gonna be angry with God because that's not God's agenda for your life. He has a, you're going to constantly live with this dysphoria between who you want to actualize and who God is trying to turn you into. But if your ultimate worldview is my fundamental purpose in this life is to love God and become more like God and grow in my relationship with God, do you know what's going to happen? Even when a trial hits, you're going to go, you know what? God's using even this. He's using even this. I believe it. And even that trial could be a source of joy in your life as you see God do things that could never be accomplished. Anybody watch the Olympic trials? 
down in Eugene. These were amazing. I thought about this. There isn't a single athlete who became that gifted with that much endurance on accident. They experienced unbelievable suffering and hardship to get to that place. (laughs) They did. And that's what trials can do. I'm going to tell you one last thing here and then we're going to close. There's one thing that you must have in your life in order for trials to accomplish their purpose. One ingredient that if you don't have it, the trial is going to sink your boat instead of proving your faith. And it's right here in verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given. Notice right before that, James had said, now look, you know that the testing of your faith, the purpose is to create steadfastness. And then he says, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. He's talking about maturity. The purpose of our life is to grow towards maturity in Christ. He says it lacking nothing. And I think when he, when he wrote that, James wrote lacking nothing, it triggered him and he realized, oh, but there is one thing that if you're lacking it, the trial will sink your ship. And that one thing you need is wisdom. When a baseball player steps into the batter's box, There's a lot of things they can go without in that moment, right? Lots of things you can do without in the batter's box. You can go without a glove. You can go without a helmet. Maybe not very wise, okay? You can go without a jock strap. That's terribly unwise, all right? Lots of things you can go without in the batter's box. You can step into the batter's box and not have talent, okay? That's a one-sentence description of my childhood baseball experience, okay? No talent. When I was playing Little League, I would step into the batter's box and my coach would immediately say, all right, McMurray, just wait it out. Wait it out, McMurray. Four balls, just four balls. (laughs) But there's one thing you cannot step into the batter's box without, a bat. You have to have a bat. And there's one thing you absolutely have to have in order for trials to turn you into a mature Christian. You need wisdom. Now, wisdom is a prominent theme in James. In fact, we have a whole sermon on wisdom later, and I'm really excited about it. So all I'm going to do right now is focus on what appears to be James's focus. Because notice what he says. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But, and look at this, let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded, unstable in all his ways. And I, I think what James is saying here is he's saying faith connects you to an infinite source of wisdom. It's your faith that connects you to that. Because 
faith trusts in the character of, of, the, of the wisdom giver. Isn't that interesting? This is why I think James says, you, you cannot uh, earn wisdom. You cannot create wisdom. You don't get real wisdom through life experience. You don't get wisdom from a book and you don't get wisdom from a degree. There's only one way to get the wisdom that you really need. You have to go to God in humility and ask him for it with no doubting. That, friends, that is a precious, precious statement. Have you ever woken up and said, I need wisdom right now? And then what do we do? I need to read a book. I need to go on this blog. Oh, I need to think about this. Why don't we, what we often don't do is we don't fall on our knees and say, God, you are generous. Look at how James described him. He's generous. He gives without reproach. I love that. You know what that means? It means if you ever fall on your knees and say, God, please give me wisdom, he will never rebuke you. He will never go, I cannot believe you don't have wisdom he will go, of course I will give you wisdom. I love that. So James says, don't doubt. The reason, the doubting he's saying is the the kind of doubting where you say, well, I'm not really sure God's generous. I'm not sure really God's good. Throw that out. And with total faith, fall on your knees. Let me promise you something. If you pray that prayer, you're gonna make it through your trial because God will give you wisdom to see it his way. Can I ask you to pull out your communion packet with me? Because it's, it's important right now that I take a minute and tell you a few things about Jesus. There are communion packets, by the way, in the back of the room. If you, It's okay to get up and, and, and grab one of those. I guess here's what I want to say last. Hebrews 12. The writer of Hebrews said, do you know what drove Jesus to, to this? Where he would allow them to put nails through his hands and his feet and a crown of thorns for his blood to be shed. It was joy. For the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. So when you're, when you're needing an example, someone to follow, Lord, my life is falling apart. God says, I understand. My son Jesus endured trial after trial after trial. He was mocked, he was abused, he was physically beaten, he was rejected, he was betrayed. They drove nails through his hands and he endured to the end. Somehow, with a joy. And you say, I need an example to follow. Friends, you've got one. But not only that, and this is the most precious thing about Christianity, when you fail to endure the test, and you will, you will fail. There will be a moment in your life where you'll hit a hardship 
and you will want to give up on God. And in your heart, you will scream at God and, be, and, and deny God and yell at God and you'll blow it. Do you know what's amazing? Jesus died even for that. He died even for that. And so you come back to the cross and Jesus says, I'm going to give you a new beginning. Right now, you get a new beginning to carry on on the path of endurance. Can we pray about that? Can we bow your heads with me? Lord, how we thank you for the meal we're about to eat. Because really it's a meal about suffering. It's a meal about a trial, the greatest trial in human history. And our savior and our king, Jesus, he endured to the end. And he's paved a way for us. And so we say thank you, Lord. Would you nourish us this morning with this meal, we pray. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.